It's Tuesday, March 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Inflation continues to be a problem with a not-so-easy solution. Part of the problem is not everyone agrees on the absolute causes, so the fixes are also not agreed upon. Most can agree that supply chain issues, rising oil prices, and shifting consumer demands are all contributors. While the Fed and the White House try to help, they are limited in what they can do. Emily Stewart, senior correspondent at Vox, joins us for the complicated issue. Next, a new supply chain issue could be on its way soon to one of the busiest ports in the world. New contract negotiations for more than 22,000 union dock workers will be going on soon, and if history is any indicator, we are in for some disruptions. These workers have been working around the clock for most of the pandemic, and some points of resistance could be more automation at the ports. Peter Goodman, global economics correspondent at the New York Times, joins us for this possible supply chain risk. Finally, crime concerns in Los Angeles are leading to wealthier homeowners to seek out panic room installs in their house. Depending on the build-out, the price can range anywhere from $100,000 to $1 million. Hadley Mears, contributor to The Hollywood Reporter, joins us for the rising demand for safe rooms. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You know, there's some other stuff that's just going on that's kind of outside of the United States, obviously. We have Russia's war on Ukraine. That is going to push up prices even more. As COVID hits China hard, that's going to cause supply chain issues. So it's a lot of things that are going on. Joining us now is Emily Stewart, senior correspondent at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about inflation. Obviously, it's a huge problem. It's the highest it's been in 40 years. We're seeing prices of everything going up right now. As you know, we're also seeing gas prices go up to record highs too. One of the big problems with this is inflation always takes a little bit of time to work itself out. And right now we're in this kind of special position where nobody really knows exactly what it is to blame. There's some consensus on a couple things, but not everybody agrees. And that means that not everybody agrees on what the solution to fixing inflation is also. Uh, so it's a very complicated situation. The uh, main things we have are supply chain issues, rising oil prices, shifting consumer demands. But Emily, what are we seeing with this? How do we fix this? You know, I do think in terms of the causes, you know, it's tricky. There is some stuff that people really have like a pretty decent consensus on, as you mentioned. Like we all know like the supply chain stuff has been a problem for quite some time. We know that the economy has just been a little bit wonky in terms of demand. You know, the U.S. is a service-based economy, right? During the pandemic, it's become much more goods-focused. So people have a lot of money to spend on goods, but they're having a hard time getting those goods. And when they get them, you know, maybe they're a little bit pricier. We're seeing that in cars, for example, a lot. Both new and used cars are very expensive now because if you have a newer used car to sell, you can sell it for a lot of money if you want because a lot of people want to buy. You know, there's some other stuff that's just going on that's kind of Outside of the United States, obviously, we have Russia's war on Ukraine. That is going to push up prices even more. As COVID hits China hard, that's going to cause supply chain issues. So it's a lot of things that are going on, which then, of course, gets to why it's so hard to fix this stuff, because a lot of it's hard problems to fix, and it's a lot of problems to fix. A lot of it is kind of out of our hands in that sense. There's little limited things, let's say, that the Fed can do or the White House can do to just bring prices down right away. It's all these external factors, this global economy that we live and operate in now. And that's why things take time. And there, you, we just can't raise the interest rate, which we've done already, right? And it's going to change everything right away. 
Right. Some of this stuff is going to take some time to shake itself out. You know, one person that I talked to joked with me that if the White House had a button to stop inflation, they would. You know, they know that it's bad and that it bothers people. But they're doing kind of what they can do. You know, one economist I talked to said, listen, like, a good thing that the White House is doing is that they're kind of leveling with people. They're like, hey, this sucks. We know you're going to be here for a while. And, you know, we do have the Fed starting to raise interest rates, but that's going to take time. And, and, you know, it's also important to remember that, again, like you said, it's stuff that's outside of the United States' control. The U.S. has nothing to no say in what happens in China. The U.S. has made the decision to, in other countries, to enact sanctions against Russia that's going to make things you know, worse. That's a decision that we've made and kind of a trade-off that the government thinks is, is worth it. But you also can't control that Russia has, has invaded Ukraine, obviously. Um, and some of this stuff is going to take time. You know, a lot of people that I talked to also said, maybe this is a moment to really take a look at how our supply chains work and how our infrastructure works and how our economy works and make some investments that we've needed to make for a long time, you know, a lot of this was precarious before the pandemic hit, and we've seen that there's much precarity across the economy. So maybe in a different world or you know, maybe in the future, there will be some investments made so that if there is another pandemic or when there are disruptions, things like that, that the situation wouldn't be so dire. And you write in, in your latest article that we are kind of going through this recovery after the pandemic, and the economy is doing kind of good. That's why it's so weird to be talking about all of this. People do have extra money and all because of stimulus payments. People suggest that could also be causing the inflation. But that's one thing that's so weird about it. The economy is doing okay. It's just all this other stuff is still keeping prices high. Right. And it's hard to tell people not to feel how they feel. Like Inflation sucks. But I think it's also important to remember You know, the economy is much better than it was a couple of years ago. Unemployment is getting much better, obviously, than it was two years ago. And some of this is just a symptom of the economy being better. You know, people do have more money to spend, like you said, because of stimulus checks. Also, because people weren't spending money a year or two ago. I wasn't going to restaurants. Now I am again. Some of this stuff is going to shake itself out, but it's just not a satisfying answer, obviously. Emily Stewart, senior correspondent at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Negotiating a new contract, which uh, hasn't happened yet, that'll probably start sometime in May, that could be a pretty bumpy ride. And if, if they don't agree, if there's any kind of impasse or in the worst case scenario, a strike, yeah, that could be hugely disruptive, not just in in the U.S., but really around the world. Joining us now is Peter Goodman, global economics correspondent at The New York Times and author of Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about some uh, possible supply chain issues that could be coming our way. We've been talking a lot about inflation, all the things that impact that. The supply chain issues have been one of those things that a lot of people point to. And, you know, we saw just a month or a few months ago, you know, all the hassle that was going on at the ports of L.A., uh, you know, all these shipping containers and big ships just having uh, just tons of products on there, not being able to be offloaded because of all the delays and things that were happening. Well, there's a worry that this could be happening again, as a lot of the dock workers are coming very soon to their contract negotiations. And if a strike could happen, we could be in for it all over again. So, Peter, help us uh, walk through some of this. What are we seeing? 
Well, first of all, we're still in it. You still have, uh, as we speak, uh, several dozen ships that are floating in the Pacific off the ports of L.A. and Long Beach, which collectively are the gateway for something like 40% of all imports coming into the U.S. from Asia. We're not in anything that looks like normal in terms of the supply chain. You've still got truck drivers waiting for hours at the gates of both ports to pick up containers. You've got huge stacks of containers. I mean, it takes weeks for a ship to unload that comes in with a bunch of imports from Asia. So that's the backdrop. Meanwhile, the dock workers, we're talking 22,000 union dock workers who work at 29 ports along the West Coast, and roughly three-fourths of them at those two incredibly important ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Their contract expires at the end of June. And if history is any guide, negotiating a new contract, which uh, hasn't happened yet, that'll probably start sometime in May, that could be a pretty bumpy ride. And if, if they don't agree, if there's any kind of impasse or in the worst case scenario, a strike, yeah, that could be hugely disruptive, not just in, in the U.S., but really around the world, because these two ports are just so important that once you shut down the system or even slow down the system, that'll have ripple effects as far as Rotterdam, Europe's largest port, all the ports in, in China. The consequences could lead to more product shortages and continued increases in prices for a whole range of consumer goods. So, I mean, what would be a big sticking point in all this, especially if uh, maybe negotiations haven't completely started yet? Well, they haven't started at all. I mean, the union won't talk about their demands, though it's clear that automation is likely to be a sticking point because the so-called terminal operators, I mean, these are the companies that operate the shipping terminals. They're eager to bring in more robots, automate more jobs. The union sees that as a threat to the paychecks for their members in places like L.A. and Long Beach, where you don't have a lot of extra land. We're talking about ports that are right in the middle of very dense urban communities. Uh, the only way to process more cargo to move faster is so-called productivity gains. You, you, you got to do stuff more efficiently and quicker. And automation is part of that. Now, the dock workers position is, hey, don't look at us in terms of talking about slowdowns and delays. I mean, they, they worked straight on through the worst pandemic in a century. At least two dozen members died of COVID, according to reports to the union. And they say, look, it's the terminal operators who are in many cases controlled by these shipping carriers. These are multinational conglomerates that are charging, you know, 10 times as much to move a container from factory towns in China to the West Coast of the United States as before the pandemic. They're the ones benefiting from all this chaos. They lack incentive to invest in things like more people, better equipment to clean up this mess. They like the status quo. So the dock workers will say, yeah, we make no apologies for being extremely well paid. But their position is, if you're looking at us as the problem in the supply chain, then you're you're just accepting that huge swaths of the American workforce have been downgraded over decades. And this is the benefit of having a union. We stick together and we're doing vital work at a time when it's clear, given the supply chain problems, that our work is more vital than ever. But of course, if you're just thinking about how do I get stuff off a ship and into stores, this is a volatile dynamic because the shipping companies are making record profits and the dock workers are aware of that. And they're aware that they have high leverage, given that any kind of impasse would have real economic consequences. And a big worry is because if you look to the past, 
there have been disruptions anytime you know contract negotiations come up. So I, I get a lot of people are looking towards that as a guideline saying, well, we might be in for some problems. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of trigger pointing, right? Like if you go back to the last time the contract ran out in 2014, the dock workers say that they got set up for accusations of slowdown, that the terminal operators suddenly would say things like, hey, you see that container that's like stacked right at the bottom of a six uh, container stack? We need that one right now. And then they would say, oh, look, the dock workers are going slower. The terminal operators say that the dock workers are going slower and the (laughs) truck drivers waiting for the containers who tend not to have very good relationships with dock workers blame the dock workers. Yeah. You know, if the history tells us that when there's a contract negotiation, both sides will engage in various shenanigans to boost their leverage and make the other side look like the bad guys. Right. Peter Goodman, global economics correspondent at The New York Times and author of Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. One man I talked to said that they have seen over a thousand percent increase in inquiries about building a panic room in the past few months. Joining us now is Hadley Mears, contributor to The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks for joining us, Hadley. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, you wrote an interesting article, Demand for Safe Rooms Skyrocket in Los Angeles. And uh, I, I do live in Los Angeles. That's where we do the podcast from. You know, there's been a lot of stuff going on out here, a lot of concerns about crime. We've had, you know, a rash of different little crime waves going on. And um, I think even today, the day of this recording, the LAPD chief had called a press conference to talk about crime going on in, in neighborhoods. So it is a concern that's going on right now. But what we're also seeing is, uh, you know, some Uh, homeowners on the wealthier side, obviously, installing panic rooms, these safe rooms that can run up to a million dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars for more simpler setups. And uh, you spoke to a couple of people that uh, uh, build these rooms out and uh, they were telling you about the experience. So Hadley, tell us a little bit more. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, safe rooms have been a thing that the ultra wealthy and billionaires had for decades. But uh, more and more, we're seeing these safe rooms or panic rooms. I think they like to call them safe rooms because it doesn't sound quite as scary. (laughs) Being installed in homes that are going, you know, at a four or five million dollar price point, which, of course, as we know, in L.A. is not usually that extravagant a home, sadly, because of housing prices. So you're just seeing this huge increase. One man I talked to said that they have seen over a thousand percent increase in inquiries about building a panic room in the past few months. So it really is just kind of going out of control, in my opinion, the uh, way that people are dealing with these different crime waves or perceived crime waves that are happening in L.A. So for this story, you spoke to Building Consensus Panic Room. This This is a business. They've been doing it for 25 years. They build rooms, uh, you know, on a security level one to eight and each room obviously increasing uh, costs more money, but the protection is obviously better, too. Yeah, it's really fascinating when he told me about that kind of one to eight scale. And so a one maybe, you know, is a room that has Kevlar and is safe, but not 
as safe as one might think. It costs about $150,000. And eight is encased in thousands of pounds of steel. You know, you're using a retina scan to get in. A lot of times there's your own HVAC system in there. You've got your own plumbing system. You've got everything you would need to survive for days at a time. So the scale really slides depending on what you're willing to spend. And, you know, they're also really increasingly using them kind of as bunkers, like prepper bunkers. So you're seeing places with a lot of ammunition, a lot of guns, a lot of food, places people can hunker down for a long time. Real estate agents, mm-hmm. they know, obviously, the, what what's inside the house. It has the safe room, all, all that. But maybe for a casual buyer, they even say, you know, we can't really tell everybody what it is because what if somebody's casing it out for, you know, maybe I'm going to uh, commit a crime, you know, down the road once we somebody settles in here. Um, so it's kind of like this little play that they have to do, uh, maybe not telling certain people or when uh, people are coming to inspect the house, they can't let them know as well. Yeah, I love that story that uh, one of the agents I was speaking with told me about how they had an appraiser come out and he was measuring this house and he kept saying, I can't figure out why there's this dead space, you know, why why is there this space? And they couldn't tell them what it was, right? They couldn't say it was a panic room. And they also made a really good point that, you know, they don't always know exactly who's looking at homes, especially homes at lower price points where there's no kind of pre-evaluation or qualification. So the worst thing they could possibly do is show a potential burglar where the safe room is and how to get in. So it's kind of this cat and mouse game that folks are playing with each other for this amenity that is increasingly in demand and wanted by a lot of people who are buying these homes. There are concerns about crime going on in the city and people's homes. People want to protect themselves, all that. But this is also a very L.A. story when we're talking about million dollar homes, you know, uh, safe rooms that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to a million dollars. And, you know, they're not your run of the mill safe rooms, right? It's not just a cold steel room with some supplies. And as you mentioned earlier, maybe ammo and things like that. These are really like everyday living spaces, the way they design these things out. Oh, absolutely. And I spoke with folks that said people have their interior designers design them. They almost always have a, you know, a TV, a state of the art radio system, a comfortable couch. Some of them are having beds now. Most of them are having toilets now and some kind of shower situation. So they're really trying to make these rooms, especially the higher end rooms, feel like just another room, just another din that someone can relax in while they are hiding from uh, a potential (laughs) burglar or murderer. And it's so funny because uh, when I was posting this article on social media, I was saying, you know, these safe rooms, which are bigger than my entire apartment by three times over, right? And this is just one little blip in these people's homes. It is kind of that feeling that this is not just something that's going away or just kind of a flash in the pan style thing. They they, uh, think homes above a certain price level are probably going to just kind of start becoming outfitted with certain things like this. Maybe not a full room, but at least uh, safes, things like that. Just looking for that security. Beyond even just looking for extra security, the name of the game right now in high-end L.A. real estate is amenities. Because if you're selling houses for this ridiculous amount of money, you've got to give a reason for people to want them. So you're seeing more and more gyms, pools, movie rooms, all these different amenities. And I think a safe room is now just going to become kind of organically another amenity for homes above a certain price point. Hadley Mears, contributor to The Hollywood Reporter. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.